Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. First Samuel chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do and what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one that I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders in the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So in the last chapter, when we left off last week, Saul uh, had rejected God, and God had rejected him. And the kingship of Saul had folded. Uh, 15.23 says, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. But Saul's still sitting on the throne. And that was a private conversation. So the only people that really know that Saul's kingship is kind of done spiritually are Samuel and Saul, who were talking to each other, and the Lord God Almighty. The rest of the kingdom, Saul's still on the throne. He's still doing his thing. So um, this becomes then a very relevant situation when you have leaders that sit in root leadership positions, yet God's rejected their leadership and walked away from them spiritually. So Samuel, at the end of the chapter, was mourning Saul. We pick up this chapter. He's still in mourning. It doesn't say how much time has passed. But we're clearly getting towards the end of Saul's reign, and Samuel, remember, started out in the temple as a young boy, and he's turned into an old man at this point. So time passes, but Samuel's still mourning. He's not mourning like crying with sackcloth and ashes. Uh, the, the mourning here is in that he's still just kind of upset because he spent his whole life training and getting Saul ready for the kingship. So to see this failing in the kingship had to be devastating for Samuel. But what Samuel doesn't know is how our God works. When it looks darkest... God's doing something amazing, and that's what this chapter is all about. So 1535 um, is where you see that he was mourning uh, for Saul, and we see that same word being used here. Um, but the Lord is not done with Samuel. He says, how long will you mourn? So God's given him a season to do this. Um, we see in Ecclesiastes that sometimes there are seasons where we can do that sort of thing. But Samuel's going to learn that God's always moving forward. That when God, when it looks like from the world's perspective, things are going backwards, God's actually advancing a plan, and that plan is all of human history kind of as a scope. So this is not the last time this will happen. Like when Jesus dies on the cross, that looks pretty dim for all the believers in the room. But that's exactly what God's doing to move his plan forward. So God uses these kinds of seasons to actually advance his plan. Um, and we know that all things work together for, those, for good 
to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. Saul's rejection is the path to David. David is a huge improvement in the kingship that God's going to actually bring for Israel. So he says, fill your horn with oil and go. A couple things to notice there. Back in chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel anointed Saul. When he anointed Saul, he brought a vial with him. So more of a sprinkling anointment or a little vial of oil that he dumped on Saul's head. Um, Here, he's filling a horn, which a horn of water would have been about this much, a massive amount of oil. So when that gets dumped on your head, it's an absolute dousing. So if we look at oil as kind of an image of the Holy Spirit, Saul was anointed with a very small amount. David's going to get anointed with a huge amount of oil. An uncommon amount of oil fits in a horn. So he's going to get moving. This is what he does. If you're feeling down spiritually, God says, get up and move. Do the things he's asking you to do. So Samuel has to be a little bit excited when he hears from the Lord again after this season of mourning. Okay, we're up, we're moving, let's get doing what we got to do for the kingdom. So God's work doesn't end just because Saul fails, it goes on. You can kill the worker, but the work goes on. Um, So the word Bethlehemite there. If you look at the Hebrew part of that verse, it actually says Bethlehem twice. And most translations only say the word Bethlehemite once. But when in the Hebrew we see something used two times, it's emphatic. So it should read like, I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, right? It's supposed to have an accent to it. Uh, Because there's something significant about Bethlehem, which is, in this generation, we're only two generations away from the story of Ruth. And Ruth, of course, and, and, and Boaz, that story of love and romance that image of God's plan for people, that marriage of the bride, uh, that happened in Bethlehem. So this connection that God's making for Samuel, the story of Ruth would have been known by Samuel. It had been something that they were sharing with each other. So when God says, I'm going to do something new and it's going to happen in Bethlehem, it has a special ring for somebody like Samuel or someone who wants to see God move. Because that's really the last place God has really done kind of something amazing. So when we already got through the book of Ruth, you all know the story of Ruth, um, but I'll point this out from Ruth 4.17. The women, her neighbors, gave it a name saying, there, there is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed and he is the father of Jesse. Jesse, the, and then that makes David the grandson of Obed, so, or the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. So the fact that this is happening in Bethlehem says something to Samuel. You're mourning because you think everything's going to pot with Saul. I've been planning for this for two generations. And I just love how God works like that. It's not just a little spark of hope. It's a, oh my goodness, God's been working on this forever. It's all been orchestrated. And, and, and God already has the answer to Saul, Samuel's mourning and prayer. So what a joy this had to be that Samuel's life is not an epic fail. It's actually part of God's plan. And even though it feels like sometimes life is failing, it may just be that God's got a plan for what's going on in that environment. So praise God. It says, I've provided, uh, this opening is great. I've provided myself a king among his sons. Immediately we're talking about David, right? But look carefully at the language of that sentence. When it says see or appear there in the Hebrew, 
That's a primitive root. It means all tenses of the word, past, present, and future. See, look what I've done. See, look what I'm doing. See, look what I'm going to do in the future. So in Genesis 1-4, that see or appear word was used when it said, God saw the light and it was good. It's a, it's a, it's a primitive root of the word. So that sentence in the English is a lot of words. In the Hebrew, it's only four words. See, me, king, and then the Hebrew word ben, which means son. <laughs> see me, king, son, or son of man is where we get this from, right? So look, Samuel, there's, there's going to be something that happens here. And in different tenses, again, in the Hebrew, you can apply it with different like linking words. It could be, and a good translation is, I've provided myself a king amongst its sons. An equally good translation, if you're looking at this through messianic prophecy, is, look, I am myself a king, a son. I'm going to come as the son of myself, right? It works perfectly, and I'm going to do it in Bethlehem. So that works perfectly. So years ago, God provided a king named Saul after human desire. Here he's going to provide both the king after his own choosing, David, and in the same spot, he's going to provide himself a king for Israel and a king for us, too, if, if we serve in that kingdom. So this is an outstanding kind of situation where God's criteria for this is that he's going to be doing a new thing. And that's what God's word is to somebody who's feeling down. Verse 2 says, Samuel says, how can I go if Saul hears it, he'll kill me. That's a sign of Saul's leadership, that the nation is less stable, that people are anxious about what this king's going to do. He's, he's, his character has corroded since we saw him last time. In verse 2 of Samuel's fearful of Saul, and the Lord gives him a, a way to get around that fear, it says that the fear was legitimate. How am I going to anoint another king? Saul's going to kill me if I try to do that. Um, so this remains a good line. Uh, God tells him to say, I'm just giving this to the Lord. And that's a good line for us too if we feel like we're in persecution. I'm just doing it for the Lord. So that's what he tells Samuel to say. You know, just, you're going to take a cow, you're going to go down and sacrifice it, and you're doing it for me. That's all you need to say. And he says, I will show you. God asks again for his servant to take a step without knowing what the next step is going to be. Did this with Joshua, did this with Moses, pretty much does this on a regular basis. I want you to just take the next step that I'm telling you to take. And you don't have to know what the, the future steps are or the next ones are. So the Israel is done kind of king by human choice or king by committee, and now they're going to do king by God's choice. And that's what's happening in, in this thing. So take a cow, use it for a sacrifice, and you have plausible deniability because I'm not telling you technically what you're going to do next, which I like. Um, so, so Samuel is going to have a chance to do this. Verse 4, the elders of the town are trembling. Again, this speaks to Saul's leadership. But it also speaks to Samuel. Remember last time we saw Samuel, he was hacking up a king of the pagans? Like, if the prophet of God shows up in your town, your first question is, are we in trouble? And, and, and this is kind of a an uneasy situation for a prophet. Um, spiritually, the nation's not in good shape when somebody has to say this. If a person of God shows up, like, or, or somebody that you respect shows up, like your mom walks in the room, if you're doing something bad, you feel ashamed. If you're doing something perfectly good and healthy, you say, hey, good to see you. Welcome, thanks for coming. 
And we always use the standard for like movies we would pick. If your mama walked in the room, would she be okay you were watching that movie? Um, so that's the, the idea here that the, the elders of the town are wondering what's going on. Maybe the elders of the town weren't, you know, serving the Lord the way they should have been. But Samuel lets him off the hook. He says, peaceably, have you come peacefully? And he says, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Maybe he's, you know, hinting here that, that he's there for the peace sacrifices. He's, he's got a cow coming with him. So the idea of a peace sacrifice could be what's going on. Exodus 19, 14, Moses sanctifies the whole group, and, they, and that idea of you need to go get sanctified, Samuel's referencing kind of something we've already seen happen, which is you need to get yourself ready because God's going to do something wonderful. And when Moses did this, and he asked all of Israel to go home, take a bath, wash your clothes, um, and then come back, and we're going to gather together, and be ready for the Lord, the Lord actually spoke to the nation of Israel. So when Samuel says to this whole community, this whole town, go back, sanctify yourselves, we're going to have a feast, and we're going to do it at Jesse's place, um, they don't necessarily know what's coming next, but they actually go and do it. So to sum up, Sam's in mourning. God says, oh, look over here, Bethlehem. So Samuel says, let's see who God's going to put on the throne, um, and we, don't, we shouldn't fear because God's always raising up his leaders. So there's definitely a mirroring here to kind of the story of Jesus, right? Things look really dim. Look at Bethlehem. God's going to put a new king on the throne, and he's, doing, and he's been planning this since the ages began. So this idea that God works in these kind of levels or, or patterns um, throughout history is amazing. God's always raising up his leaders, even today. So when things look dark, God's still raising up his people. He's going to put his people in the right place at the right time. So verse 6, next God has to train Samuel a little bit. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Jesse brings out his oldest son. This must be the, look at this guy. He looks amazing. He is a handsome man. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is a good like summary thesis statement for the whole Bible so far. This is how God operates. He sees what's inside. So you can look the part, but lack the heart. And that's what's going on with Saul. And that's what's probably going on with Eliab. So he, he decides Samuel's got to learn that God looks at other things besides how pretty somebody is or how handsome they are. So this also goes to a biblical truth that we can see a person and not know what's going on in their heart. And this is one of those things that if we're going to do things God's way, we have to listen to God because he's the only one that can see into people's hearts. He's the only one that can discern like that. So when God says, I have refused him, in the Hebrew, there's, that's not a singular word. So it's not that he's refused Iliab. That should read more like, I've refused people like him. We did that with Saul, and I'm, I'm refusing that kind of person. So when it says, I refuse them, it's more, er, it, I've refused them. I've refused people that you think look good, but they have bad hearts. They're not going to serve for me in that role. So... Thankfully, Samuel is listening to God. He's getting guidance from God. He responds to God. So Samuel's not expected to know what God thinks here, but he is expected to listen to God's word and then move and act accordingly. So the Lord looks at the heart. He's using this criteria. 
and then they we move through the rest of the sons. This is really good news for humble people or not pretty people. This is great news for all of us, right? That if God looks at our heart and we know our heart, we're the only other entity in the universe that knows our own heart other than God. If what's in our heart is holy, honest, pure, broken, humble, we welcome this kind of God. But if what's in our heart is sick, we ref it's easy to refuse this kind of a God. Who wants a God that looks at your heart when you know what's in there? So for a lot of people, this brings us to a place of realizing that our core, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. None of us can do this on our own. And the only proper response is to cry out for help and ask God to save us. Thankfully, he's offered a way of salvation. Matthew 15, 18, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile the man. Jesus makes the exact same point. It's all about what's on the inside. It's not about the outside. And thus, Jesus eliminated all of kosher law. Right. So ultimately, the good news for those who love the Lord, that same news is terrifying for people who don't love the Lord. But for those of us who do love the Lord and we really are honestly seeking his face and we want to be at the wedding feast that he's about to throw, this is great news that God actually knows our heart regardless of how the world sees us or treats us. So Jesse, verse 8, called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither is the Lord chosen this one. So here we get the singular, this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither is the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Perfect. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. So nothing wrong or sinful about the sons of the feast. They might be good people, but the Lord hasn't chosen them. And no reason why is named, just that it's not God's choice. So... There's no clear indication we should note that Jesse has any idea what's going on right now. Because we haven't seen in the, in the text that Samuel has told Jesse what he's doing. So in this light, there's going to be another son that's out there, and you guys know this story, that Jesse doesn't even deem worthy of bringing before the prophet. Because he's the, the other one, right? The one that is not somebody he's particularly um, honoring or, or valuing at that level. Verse 5. Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. So imagine they're at a high place in town. And from a high place, you can kind of see the region around you. So you could point and say, that there he is over there with the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring for him, for we will not sit down until he comes. This is a, a, an action of honor. We're going to wait. Usually when the head of the feast or the person of honor at the feast came into the room, everybody would stand. There's still some environments where you do this, right? Like there's some gentlemen that'll stand when their wife comes into the room and you seat that person first because they're the ones that come to rest first because you're giving them honor. So by doing this, Samuel flips tail on this. Josephus says that David was right around 10 years old when this happens. So he's a kid. 10-year-old out fighting lions. Um, verse 1 uh, says one of the sons, and then none of them are picked. Samuel had to be thinking, like, did God screw this one up? So when he's asking Jesse this question, that's really a question of faith. Because to say, don't you have any more sons? What's going on? In Samuel's knowledge of what God had said, he knows that what he's seeing in the world isn't right. 
So it's a proper reaction to say, are there more sons? Because God said he was going to pick one. So the youngest there is not highly regarded by human standards. Not sitting makes it a high regarding kind of thing. God uses unlikely people to do his work. And we see that again and again and again in the word. We see that God uses people that are at work for his services. We've seen that again and again and again. People that aren't working don't get picked by God to do things. So to, when we see God doing this, he's picking somebody that has been looked over by the world, by his own dad. Notice that his dad doesn't name him. He just says the youngest, right? Doesn't even say his name. And he's out keeping the sheep. What is it about keeping sheep? You could do a whole like proper sermon on keeping sheep. Very briefly, it's the lowest of the work in the house or the family. It is the job nobody wants because it's hours and hours and hours of time with very low skill needed. What you do need to have is a willingness to put your life on the line in case either bandits or animals come after your sheep. So it is a, a thankless job that is actually also dangerous. But look at the benefit. While this kid is in the field, God's training David by being close to him out in nature. And David's getting a lot of time to spend with the Lord, which we know because we see the results of that in the Psalms. He's out there writing praise songs to God. And that's actually what prepares him for God's work, is meditating on God's character and on God's law when he's out in those fields. And he's a protector. So we know that that's the kind of person David is, is that he looks out for the sheep even above his own life. So that's the character God's looking for, even if the world doesn't value that. God sure does. This is the man that God's training up to be a king. Uh, if you look at Psalm 78, like this is a great psalm where David just writes about the heart of a shepherd and compares it to the heart of a king. So David didn't miss the idea that being a shepherd trained him to be a king. And that idea of service and time, bravery, spending time with the Lord. Verse 12, so he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and I like this, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. That's the first mention of the name David in the Bible. Boom. Now he shows up. So Samuel does his job. Like, don't miss the idea that a horn of oil just got dumped on a 10-year-old's head, right? And nobody in the room knows why Samuel just did this. So we'll wait. We'll all stand here. We're all, they're all standing there. Here comes this little ruddy 10-year-old kid. Samuel walks up, dumps the oil on his head, and apparently just walks away, right? And so it's kind of like Samuel's like, I did my job. I'm out of here. Like, Samuel needs to do nothing more for God's work. He does what God told him to do, and he walks off. He doesn't add to it. I just think this is great. The word ruddy, we've seen before in the story of Jacob and Esau, means red, right? It's the same word. So something was different about David. So you're talking about Hebrew kids, and this one either has red hair or ruddy can be used for like a red face or red complexion, like a skin disorder or something. But then it says he was good looking, which clarifies it. So he was just red. Maybe he was totally sunburned from being a shepherd and having no suntan lotion, right? Either way, he's either a redhead amongst a bunch of brothers that don't look that way. Um, I don't think there's a skin thing there. I've seen that. But when it follows up and said he was good looking, um, so he was still easy on the eyes. 
and this should say something. There's nothing wrong with being good looking. It's just that that's not how God selects his kings. But the, it's like he selects his king because of the heart, but he just so happens to be good looking. It's a secondary quality, right? So the bright eyes there in the Hebrew implies a beautiful countenance, but in, in the sense of character. So if you've met a bright-eyed person, you can tell when you meet them that they're really intelligent, that they're sharp, that they're with it in conversation, or they're connected or engaging when you talk to them. They're bright-eyed, right? Do you know what I'm saying when you, like, that kind of person? Um, it, it can almost sometimes, and when this shows up in a child like this, this is amazing. And good-looking is flat-out, physical, attractive, good-looking. This is a handsome kid. He would be a 10-year-old kid model. Uh, you know, he'd be doing the TV commercials. Like he's a handsome young man. So if you're casting a movie and you want to put David in the movie, you cast a good-looking guy because we get that right from these verses. The horn of oil right on his head, just falling on his shoulders. And if you've ever gotten oil on your face, like it's not easy, hard to get. It sticks with you for a few days, right? So this, And of course, David's coming in from the field. He's probably dirty. You know, but so maybe, maybe in light of the fact that Samuel already asked people to sanctify themselves, they all stood and waited for David to take a bath, meaning they stood around for a long time waiting for him. Or he's dirty, one of the two. Um, but I'm thinking to come to the feast, he would have purified himself, which meant that they were all standing for a long time. So he walks in the room, there's oil on his head. Samuel's done, he walks away. Why do the oil? So when God says this is the one, and David, you know, shows up and gets this honor, kind of shows us that to serve the Lord, we don't have to do anything, that the Lord will find us and use us where we're at. He doesn't need status. He doesn't even need his dad's endorsement to get God the honor of God. What he needs is a heart that's full of the Lord's love. And that's where God uses him. It's all about the heart. So why the oil? Lots of people can love God and be justified under the law or under the law of God but not be used by God. So David's already got a relationship with the Lord at this point. It's why God chose him. But the oil is something different than being loved by God. So this is one of those tough things for me, but I keep seeing it in the Bible. It's one thing to have a relationship and live for the Lord. It's another thing for the Lord to select you for a particular kind of service. And when he does, he equips you for that service. And he anoints you with the Holy Spirit to do that service. So this is kind of one of those ideas of how the Spirit of God came upon David. This is how the Spirit of God works. The Spirit of God works not when we want it to, but when God chooses to have it work in our lives. This is why we're always looking for it. We're aware. We got our eyes open and our ears open for where the Spirit is working in our life because we don't know why or how it will work in our life. Does that make, like, I hope I'm making sense with that. But the idea that David didn't, he didn't do anything to earn or deserve this. He wasn't in a status or a position to where he earned or deserved this. He did nothing other than love the Lord and spend time with the Lord out in those fields. And then, boom, he's anointed with oil and he's on his way to being a king. In fact, legally, he is the king when this happens in, a, in the sense of how God's operating things here. Um, it doesn't say that Samuel ever tells Jesse what he just did and why. So Jesse may be totally unaware that the new king of Israel just got anointed because from the record, nothing, nothing says anything other than the prophet just dumped a bunch of oil on my son. Okay, David, go take a bath. They leave. The next time we see David, he's still keeping the sheep, right? So he goes right back to work. Like David goes back out in the field and starts keeping the sheep. 
So there's no like David for president campaign that happens. The humans here don't do anything to advance David. Samuel doesn't, Jesse doesn't, David doesn't. They just go back to life as normal. Get up on Monday morning and go back to work. And they're just doing it, doing the work day in, day out. The menial work of keeping sheep. But the Spirit of the Lord is on David from that day forward. So what starts to happen out in the field when the Spirit of God is on David, but he's not a king yet? I would suggest he starts writing the Psalms. He literally starts making music. He starts practicing his harp. Like there's these things in addition to shepherding that start to happen. It is very likely that he would take some days and go train with Samuel, that Samuel would come back over the next few years and be training and coaching David in the ways of the scriptures. And we see that he is literate, he is well-read, and he's a great writer because we see all that evidence in the Psalms. So that season of his life between 10 years old and David and Goliath, whatever age he was there, is a a season of training and a season of studying the word that comes before God actually, he's anointed to do the work, but he doesn't actually do anything having to do with kingship until years later. And I hope that gives that's an encouraging word for people because sometimes we get impatient with God using us for the kingdom. And what we should be doing is going back back to work every Monday and do what we do because we don't need to do anything. God's going to do all that work for David. So David deeply loves the Lord. He's a man after God's own heart and he's likely raised under his law. It doesn't say much about Jesse who overlooked him, but there's two mentions of David's mom in the Psalms. Here's one of them. Psalm 86, 16. Oh, turn unto me and have mercy upon me. Give thy strength to thy servant and save the son of thy handmaid. It seems that David's mom had a huge part in his life because he saw a mom that loved the Lord. So this is part of what prepared David for the ministry is he had an awesome mom. And we don't hear much about her, right? Um, The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. It doesn't say that it indwelled David because that doesn't really happen until after the Pentecost with the disciples where the Spirit comes into people. But the Spirit comes upon David, which is is saliach in the Hebrew, which is to rush or push somebody forward. That Spirit of God is with David and encouraging him to write those psalms, study the word, take care of the sheep, learn how to use that sling, Probably years of target practice with a sling. And David's just being pushed by the Holy Spirit. I don't know why I like shooting this sling so much, but I'm just going to keep, I want to be able to hit a quarter at 100 yards. And he's just sitting out there all day with the sheep, probably annoying the sheep, right? So there's a fly on the sheep's ear and he thinks he can take it out. Um, so he's out there being pushed by the Spirit to do things that he likely had no idea what God was prepping him for. So there's this season of training that comes where the Holy Spirit is, is pushing him, Saliach, and he starts doing all these kinds of things. Likely, Samuel uh, stops in to check in on him every so often, but we have no record of that. I'm just guessing. And then we get his name for the first time. In the Hebrew, the word David means beloved. He's loved. Loved by his mom, probably. Loved by God, for sure. The, the number of times we will see the word David is second only to the word Jesus in the Bible. Absolutely one of the major characters of the Bible just got introduced. And we, we meet him as a kid, just like we did with Samuel. Um, and he's going to be the first real king for, that God chooses to be on the throne of Israel. The last real king that will be on that throne is Jesus himself. But we get to see what that looks like. It's established right here in these verses. This is the throne of Israel. 
back with Moses in Exodus, we established the priesthood of Israel, the high priest. And that role was established. There's a whole book of Leviticus that shows what they should do. We see the playing out of the priesthood and the failing of the priesthood where Samuel takes over. Now we see the kingship is starting. So there's a second major role for the nation of Israel. The priesthood has seen its time, and now we're going to see the era of kings. Saul was not the era of kings. That was when humans tried to pick their own king. But now we're going to see a season where God's going to work through the kingship and the prophet or the high priest to move things forward. So God makes a, another move. Verse 14, <laughs> Meanwhile, across the continent or country, or field, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. I like to think that as the horn of oil gets poured out over David and the Spirit of God just rushes upon him, that Saul felt something disappear, right? Wait, what just happened? And there's this, this missing of the Lord. Saul knows what the Spirit of the Lord is like because back in chapter 10, verse 10, it said the spirit of the Lord was upon Saul um, in that um, he started dancing with all the prophets, remember? Hey, Saul's dancing with the prophets. There must be a God out there. So this idea that we're moving forward, that that's happening, uh, this is a difficult passage because it says the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now in your version of the Bible, the word distressing might be translated evil. That's actually a legit translation of that word. Some, trans, some of the versions of the Bible try to avoid that word because that makes us a theologically difficult passage, right? So God sends evil spirits. Doesn't that make God evil? Now, I don't want to confuse people, but that can be a tricky thing to get your head around sometimes. So I'll, I'll give you a few different ways that people have treated this passage in, in the past. First of all, does God cause evil? And the answer to that is no, absolutely not. God is good. So he doesn't cause evil to happen. But when God lifts his hand from people, it allows room for evil to happen. When God gives people free will, those people honestly and legitimately have the opportunity to do evil. But so do the spiritual realms. There were angels that chose evil over good. And they're called demons. But they're the same kind of class of being that God created. And some of those angels still worship at God's feet. Some of those angels decided they'd rather gather worship for themselves. So when God does this, one interpretation, which is God departed from Saul, verse 14, is that this is a passive God. That when God removes his hand, bad things happen. And that's not God causing evil, but he's passively allowing evil. To me, that's a mental gymnastic that's hard to get my head around. But think of it like this. If you go out and acid rain is pouring from the skies, the acid rain we can all call is evil. But if you have an umbrella, that's good. And as long as you have the umbrella covering you, that's good. To take away the umbrella and put it away is not the umbrella causing you harm. Does that like ring true? It's the acid rain that's doing the harm but you chose to put away the umbrella or jumping out of a plane without a parachute. The parachute didn't kill you and the parachute did no evil to you. You chose to go out of the plane without the parachute and then evil happens in a moment. It's not the, it's not the drop that kills you, it's the landing. So that's the passive God. The other one is an active God thing here where you could read this passage, uh, emphasize 
from the Lord uh, or a distressing spirit from the Lord uh, troubled him, that God actually sends a spirit that is one that distresses people. And this is part of how God moves his plan forward. We see this with Pharaoh, where Pharaoh hardened his heart in part because God let that happen. He doesn't defy Pharaoh's will when he does that, but he's allowing Pharaoh's will to carry itself out. And Saul is a distressed person. We've already seen that. So that distressing spirit simply amplifies something that Saul's heart was already going towards. So that's the active God argument. That, but in the active God argument, you have to think about the word distressing, or evil, right? That the word distressing throughout the Bible most often gets used as evil or bad, but it is also used as heavy, sorrowful, ill, afflicting, adverse, that God has angels that can afflict and that's not actually evil. So the, the use of the word evil there is actually a mistranslation. And I think that's a really legitimate way to look at the act of God argument. God actively sends an angel to upset Saul. Now, when you're outside of God's will, that's what I would call love. This is like when a parent disciplines their child. The discipline of the child, the child would call evil. But the parent would say, I am distressing you so that you can adjust yourself and get back in tune with right, right behavior, right? So God's simply still making a reach to try to get to Saul, and that's one way to look at that. So that's the argument of, well, is it really a bad thing for God to distress somebody who's outside of his will? And the answer, you know, in that sense or that argument is not necessarily in fact, that's what your conscience is. If you sin and, and your conscience is distressing you, like you know you're doing the wrong thing, that's a good thing that you're distressed. It's a good spirit for you to have or else you'd be totally hard-hearted. So if there's anything left, you should be upset when you're outside of God's will. So there's, there's distress and then there's like this idea that Saul's in a sour mood and that's something that God's actually instigating his plan to move forward, which is kind of the chapter... We're going to see how God works this out with David and Saul. God never really totally leaves Saul because if you think about it, the spirit of God holds the atoms together that makes Saul a being. So it's almost an anthropomorphism when it says God leaves a person because if they're still breathing, that means God's given them life. So as long as Saul's breathing, there's this much hope that he comes back around to serve the Lord God Almighty. And the Lord's holding his atoms together for that hope of that happening. And he's trying to discipline Saul to make it happen. But in the meantime, this distressed spirit that Saul gets actually causes him to elevate David, which is what happens. Verse 15, And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. So they recognize it's from God too. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful, a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit of God is upon you and you shall be well. So this was God's plan. This is why he distresses Saul. <clears throat> Interestingly, so the harp is not one of the big seven foot high harps that weigh a ton and you have to roll them on wheels. This is like a little handheld harp, right? A, a little Irish harp kind of thing. Um, but they looked across the whole country to find somebody who's good at playing the harp and they land on this kid named David. What was he doing out in the field with the sheep? He was taking his manual labor and mixing it with his spiritual heart. And, he, and in that behavior, he becomes prepared for God's plan. 
So God stirs the heart for David to do things like, I just can't stop myself from playing this harp. I want to get skillful at it. It's fun for me to get skillful at it. And in doing that, he's preparing for what God's got for him. To the point where other people notice his skill is actually getting pretty. This guy can play some guitar, right? Or a little harp. This guy's pretty good at that instrument. That man can blow a trumpet. And those people that, that are working on those kinds of things, it's not hard within the kingdom of God to be identified as, wow, this person really does that really well. This person can do art. This person can write. This person can, can uh, bless people with their words. This person's just got a servant's heart. You know, This person knows how to organize things. Those kinds of things are the things that I think God's using to prepare us in the kingdom. It's what he gives us a heart for. So the prescription for Saul's problem is exactly what the Holy Spirit has been moving David to do for years. The prescription matches exactly. It's like God's orchestrated all of this. So we know Saul loves music, chapter 10, verse 10. We know that music is the thing that he was most close to God. So it's no surprise that when he's distressed, the, things, the thing that calms him down is music. And for some people, that's just how music works. That's the power of music. Tempo, melody, rhyme, sound. And especially on a harp, oh, just if you're working and you put on like the YouTube 20 hours of awesome harp music, it's just chill and it's wonderful and beautiful. So, huh. oddly enough, according to basic psychological conditioning theory, if every time Saul's in a rage harp music starts to play, conditioning says, behaviorist conditioning says that he will eventually associate harp playing with rage, right? So hold on to that for another chapter when he starts throwing weapons at David for doing the things that bless him right now. But that's the thing is eventually when your heart is sour, you can take whatever pills you want to, but your heart's still sour. And there's a problem there that doesn't get covered up with things like harp music. So Saul's problem goes a little deeper than the heart music. But for now, it makes him feel good. Verse 17. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now with the man who can play well, and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. Remember, these people have no idea that David's been anointed as king, right? This is just a good harp player. A mighty man of valor. He can also fight. He's a man of war. So David's been up to some things since he got oil dumped on his head. Prudent in speech and a handsome person. He's still good looking. And the Lord is with him. Interesting that Saul's advisors would note that characteristic. Like that's how this guy's known, that the Lord's with him. So he requests a man. Clearly time has passed. He's now a man. He's skillful at playing. Um, Time and effort have gone into developing those skills. Um, it says valor and war. And, you know, one way to look at this is like, here's some criteria for a worship leader, because that's what Saul's hired as. Initially, he's not the king. He's the worship leader. So he gets brought in as a worship leader, and a worship leader has to have some skill. They have to be good at playing. They have to be a person of war. They have to know what spiritual warfare is, because worship is an act of spiritual warfare. So they have to be ready to do that. Um, being handsome doesn't hurt. You don't want to have your looks be a distraction if you're leading people in worship. Um, and the Lord is with them. And so the part that really matters is left till last. Like, of all things, if the Lord's not in it, then it's not really worship leading. So they bring him in as a worship leader. Um, 
David then sounds a lot like Jesus did in Luke 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Sounds a lot like David, right? So they both grow up and they gain reputation because they're just doing the right thing every day. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and he said, send me your son David who's with the sheep. So again, the next time we see David, he's with the sheep. He went right back to work. He didn't get all haughty when he was anointed. Like, I'm anointed by Samuel. I don't know why, but I'm anointed. And then, like, Joseph carrying that, like, lording that over his brothers. I'm special. Look at my coat of many colors. That doesn't happen with David. He's like, I'll go take care of the sheep. I don't know why that guy dumped oil on me. But the humility of David, right, having this encounter with the nation's highest religious leader had to be a moment for David at age 10. Getting the oil, you know there's something special with the oil, but you don't know what. And growing up, maybe David's just thinking that oil is just because the Lord needed, maybe Samuel just goes around to all his future worship leaders and pours oil on their head. But he does what gives him joy, he plays music, God's going to bless that. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse. And we find David back at work with the sheep. Verse 20, David and Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, The goat's probably for sacrifice, a gift. And he sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him. And he loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. (laughs) Then Saul said to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he's found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. And David would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart for him. This, you know, there's, Jesse reacts like somebody who remembers that his son was anointed. He's not surprised by the call of the king. It happens, and Jesse's ready to go, and he fully blesses his son going off to serve the Lord. Point being here, <clears throat> God's spirit is blessing David, and it, and it kind of harasses Saul, and it orchestrates this promotion from shepherd to armor-bearer of the king. That's a massive, like he leaped over a lot of people in the workplace there. And his promotion was huge and God orchestrates all of it. So so David came. The verbs are he stood, he loved, he became. David was happy to serve. He stood there. He loved, like what he has a heart of love. He doesn't just serve the king out of obedience. He actually likes the king. It is okay for people that are following a leader to actually care for and adore their leader and take care of them. So he, he loves the king. And then last but not least, um, I lost my train of thought completely. I'm sorry. Oh, he became. He's still learning. So he actually changes and grows. You can imagine these days at court, David's just learning and learning and learning how the kingdom works who the good people are, who the nasty people are, who's there to serve the king, who's kind of playing games behind the king's back. I bet David learned a lot about Israel as an armor bearer in his younger years. So it says he played with his hands. That implies that there's skill there. Of course, it's not like he could have alternatives to playing a harp with his feet or something. He played with his mouth, you know, a mouth harp. Playing with his hands indicates he played very skillfully. So the the work he's doing there is just impressive. And to become an armor bearer, we saw this with Jonathan and his armor bearer. That's a huge trusted rank in the military. Um, It's a position of honor, but it puts you on the inside of all the politics. 
and the connections, and the armor bearer kind of stands off to the side, but they can learn while they're there. Verse 22 seems redundant. If you look at that carefully, kind of wrap up the chapter in these verses because they are the end of the chapter. But verse 22 seems like an odd thing. He already got David to stand before him in verse 21. So then he sends a note to Jesse saying, please let David stand before me. Doesn't that seem like an extra verse just thrown in there? So you may have thoughts on how that works, but one thought is basically he's sending a report card to Jesse. Hey, your son's awesome. Can he stick around? So he came, he stood before Saul, he did a great job, the harp settled Saul down, and then Saul sends another note back to Jesse saying, can I just keep him here? And remember we saw in previous chapters that Saul would take sons. He does this, he has already done a lot of this. So it's no surprise to Jesse that Saul does this with him too. So then Saul becomes refreshed, is kind of uh, Hebrew for there's a honeymoon period between these two guys. And, and there, there's this season where Saul's really blessed by David being there. That season's going to come to an end very soon. But this is a lot of situations with godly people. When you first encounter or get this job with an ungodly person, there is a honeymoon period there where they appreciate all the good things a godly person brings to the workplace. David shows up on time. He works hard. He does it with a heart of love. He's got bright eyes. He's also a pretty handsome person, makes the kingdom look good. Like, this is a great employee. What's wrong with him? But as he gets to know the heart that David has for the Lord, he'll start to realize that David doesn't worship him. He worships the God Almighty. And therein lies the conflict. Eventually, the honeymoon period evaporates because Saul realizes that bright-eyed love isn't just for him. It's also for God. In fact, God takes priority over Saul. And, and Saul's going to get jealous over that. He's going to get jealous that David's just a joyful guy. He doesn't seem to have a downside, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, and everybody around him recognizes that. And they also notice that his aides recognized that there was a distressing spirit on Saul, but they also identified David as having the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord with him. Eventually, that contrast is going to drive Saul nuts, and he's going to attempt to kill David. Um, so when Jesus comes along, he's called... Uh, <laughs> You could call him a lot of things, but one of his titles is the son of David. He's not the son of Moses, not the son of Obed, son of Jesse. He's the son of David. Uh, he, he sits on David's throne. So the prominence of this character, David, we should be looking for mirrors to the king, uh, heavenly king in Jesus too. And we're going to see a lot of that. But the same is true with Jesus. When he first showed up, everybody loved him. The multitudes came out. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. He's doing things that give people that free them from their demons, just like David does with Saul. And there's a honeymoon period with Jesus. The first two and a half years of his ministry go ducky. Like it's wonderful and everybody likes him and multitudes show up. But then suddenly the powers that be get jealous of Jesus and the honeymoon dissolves. And suddenly they're not loving what he does anymore. They're actually jealous of what he does. And the very same spirit of God that made the honeymoon so great is going to make it turn ugly in the same kind of way with Jesus. And we're going to see that with David as we move forward. And here's the thing. This is a short one tonight, kind of. I don't know how long I've gone, but like I didn't want to try to do the next chapter tonight because it's David and Goliath, and it's a big one. So we'll pick up next week where David suddenly gets prominence not just with Saul's court, but the entire nation of Israel through this battle with Goliath. We'll take a look at it next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word.
We thank you for David, that we get to dig into David chapters and hear about a character that just had a heart after your own heart. Well, help us to learn how to have a heart after yours through the example of David. And we, as we read these chapters, Lord, just help us to see what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear. Lord, when you call us and you anoint us for your work and your Holy Spirit is in us, not just upon us, um, Lord, may we not blaspheme the Holy Spirit or ignore it or not listen to it. When you call us to do your work, Lord, help us to be humble and to, if, if some of us are going to go right back to working with the sheep until you move us to a new place. So Lord, help us to have that humility, that work ethic, Lord, that we just do what you have for us to do and we do it with a joyful heart. Lord, help us to take on things <clears throat> that you've put on our spirit, not to make excuses, but not a lot of shepherds are out playing harps in the field. David had to make a way to make that happen. So Lord, if you've got things that you've put on our hearts, anyone in this room, me, Lord, help us to make an hour a week, two hours, an hour a day to pursue those things you've put on our heart, those hobbies, those interests, those things that just draw us closer to you. Because if they draw us closer to you, Lord, and we develop the skill <clears throat> in those areas, Lord, maybe that's where you're calling us to be working too in your kingdom. So Lord, I just pray you... Uh, open up our calendars for those kinds of things, Lord. You free up our days. Lord, may we live with the joy and exuberance that David did. May we have bright eyes this week and we go forward, Lord, just in loving life. Lord, we know that what you look at is in our heart, not on the outside. <clears throat> so, Lord, we just pray that you bless our hearts and give us joy and peace and patience and the, the fruits of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.